Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 11th of September, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined uh, by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from Michigan, the USA. And I have to say, before his breakfast time, so this is really dedication to the UK column. Now, we've got a very busy news for you today, a lot of important information. But uh, David, we're going to kick off with you and uh, I believe you've got a report on inflation. Well, it's not going well, Brian. Uh, the Bank of England in the uh, 20, uh, August uh, 2023 uh, update and prediction assured us inflation was going to be going down and only down and it would be right back under 2%, uh, almost certainly, very soon. And, well, they're now saying something slightly different. So here we've got the FT reporting. Um, we've got a, a bump, a speed bump. Uh, it's, it's just a small it's a small upward in, inclination here. Uh, consumer price inflation, which dipped in July to 6.8%, uh, from 7.9%, is uh, expected to go up to 7.1% in August. So this does indicate that the Bank of England's predictions and the Bank of England's confidence in bringing inflation down is not as certain as it's been advertised. Uh, if we look from the FT here at the graphical representation of the inflation rate, we see that um, the red line here is the, is the monthly rate and that it zigzags all the way up. But it's, it's, its trend is still basically upwards. Um, and the, the dark blue line, the year on year, is still heading upwards. So despite the graphics in, their, uh, in the Bank of England reports, which, which show the worst is already behind us and inflation has turned down, there's indications there that inflation is actually still heading upwards, not downwards. Um, the FT also uh, comments on the public perception of this, because of course inflation is increasing the money supply. Uh, the increase in prices is simply an effect of inflation, and the public doesn't realise this, and also doesn't realise too much about what the inflation rate means. Uh, they say that 40% of the public think that, or 30 to 40% of the public think that falling inflation means that prices are going down, which isn't true, it just means that prices are going up less rapidly. Now, all of this, Brian, has a big effect on the housing market, which uh, is a big part of the United Kingdom economy. Here we see the uh, property industry eye reporting on this. Uh, they're saying that house prices suffered the sharpest annual fall in 14 years. Um, they fell by 4.6% in the year to August. You're comparing with the same time in 2022. That's £14,000 off the value of an average house. Uh, Kim Kinnear, director of Halifax Mortgages, uh, said a traditional slowdown in house buying over the summer also played a role. Despite the fact that it's year on year that's complaining August with August, I assume that summer came in August time last year as well. Um, property industry, I also quotes managing director James Forrester of uh, Barrows and Forrester, Forrester, who said, it's important to remember that this time last year, the market was flying high at the peak of the pandemic price boom. Um, and he also talks about seasonal influence. But I just wanted to leave you with that the, the unbelievable phrase, the pandemic price boom. Why on earth would there be a pandemic price boom? Of course, the answer is quantitative easing and money pumping by the Bank of England. That was creating inflation. Uh, people were feeling good about it. People were acting accordingly. And now prices have responded in the Bank of England is trying also hard uh, to bring them back down without admitting what actually caused the problem in the first place. Now, we've got here the Express uh, reporting, I'm a property expert, and I'm certain this will happen in 2024, so they've gone through several property experts, and one, Max Hancock, founder of the Good Homes Project, um, said that while this year's cooling market may impact the house price next year, vendor expectations are very strong and likely still buoyed by the perceived growth in equity during the COVID boom. So here we see this again. The, the growth in equity is illusionary. It's just inflation. It's just digital zeros and ones that have been generated by the Bank of England. It makes, it's been making people feel wealthier. It's a paper profit. And unless you took it back in 2022, people will have to appreciate that it no longer exists. Uh, the Guardian here is reporting house prices, uh, also reporting the house prices uh, suffer the sharpest fall in 14 years. And they provide uh, a nice little graph of house prices over time. Now, when you look at the graph over time, it doesn't look too bad. 
Um, you see that you can see the the two thousand seven uh, financial crisis fall, which was very substantial, and the fall that we're seeing here is less than half that uh, over a longer time period. And you know, this is after a prolonged period of house price growth, so it doesn't look all that bad, and it still looks on that graph as though houses are a jolly good investment. However, if you can, if you then correct these numbers for inflation using the CPI, a very flawed index, but using the CPI, you find that uh, this next graph, as this next graph shows from all agents, that um, actually house prices are still well off their 2007 peak in real terms and are going south. So this is taking a lot of largely fictional wealth that people have believed they've owned, believed they've possessed, uh, and shown it to be nothing but inflation, nothing but asset price booms based on zero interest rate policy. But it's going to cause real pain as people have to make real adjustments when they find out that the information they're receiving about their own finances was not legitimate. Okay, David, thank you very much for that report. Well, of course, people have got to keep an eye on the banks and who the banks really are and where they're going. Uh, let's bring in Mark here because you've been busy challenging and this is some positive news I think you have for us. Yes, uh, good day, gentlemen. Um, September 5th, right after Labor Day here in the US, I went to the village of Berrien Springs and this is from their basic website and I put a map and I inserted it for you know, most viewers who wouldn't know where Berrien Springs is, it's in southwest Michigan, as you can see, near the bottom of Lake Michigan, not far from the Indiana line in that slide. And the purpose of this, and I hope to do many more, I plan to do many more, was as a citizen, not so much as a journalist, to address local councils, village, townships, city councils, county boards, etc., about the WHO and what the WHO is up to with the pandemic treaty and the IHR regulations, because a lot of Local governments, uh, like people not getting adequate information or, or accurate information about our finances, like David Scott is talking about, they're getting little, if any, accurate information about what the WHO is up to, and many are unaware. So I'm trying to spread the word, ask questions, and test the waters as to what local governing bodies have to say about this. Now, this is a little bit of my writing here for an article that I'm soon going to be sending to UK Column. So this is a preview of coming attractions in a sense. But this is an opinion piece in part. I put here, and this is a summation of what I told the council, although what I told the, the village council was a little more simplistic and straightforward than this. But this is the sum and substance of what I'm getting into. The UN and its offshoots, including the WHO, are not just an international organization as described by the UN. It's actually a supranational government. Finalized in San Francisco in 1945, the UN consists of a charter, which is its constitution, along with a legislative general assembly, the judicial world court, and the executive security council, thus possessing the requisite components of government. But that government arguably is unlawful. Exactly where did the U.S., Britain, and other European nations obtain the authority to accede to form another government altogether, a global one at that? In America, the Constitution provides zero basis for the federal government to literally step beyond its duly constituted national functions and help create a higher-tier government. Thus, the U.N. is, in essence, synthetic, whose actions should and could be seen as nullities. What does this mean for the WHO itself, which operates on the basis of its own constitution within the UN system, as it's known? It basically means the WHO, like its UN parent, is an unlawful, clamoring club of self-anointed apparatchiks going through the motions of governance. The voters who reside in its member states never have elected their reps to do anything but govern those separate states. Have any taxpayers, voters anywhere at any time actually ever granted their representatives genuine authority in clear written form to form a new world government above the nation states? How could they? Doubtful indeed. Local civics, thus this UK column writer speaking as a citizen, took this perspective in a slightly more simple form to local government meetings beginning the 5th of September with the Berrien Springs Village Council in Southwest Michigan. The core point made to the council was that the WHO 
as part of an extra constitutional foreign governance scheme is negotiating a pandemic treaty that could override national and personal medical choice. And they have a May 2024 deadline. But none of this, uh, you know, none of these bodies have the authorities to do these things, as I'm arguing. And I got I'll sum I'll summarize with this. I got a fairly warm response, no counter argument. And Barry Gravitt, the president of the council, even said that uh, he has a lot of misgivings about the U.N. and the U.N. system and said he also distrusts greatly the World Economic Forum. And he literally said this, quote, uh, in the word evil in the dictionary should have Klaus Schwab's picture next to it. So that's a fairly resounding first response for what I hope will be many more meetings. Uh, but I, I think it's an important perspective to share, and we'll see what happens in the near future, and I'll have more reports. Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, it's very interesting. You took the time out to challenge the uh, local Berrien Springs Council. And of course, this is an important thing to do because this is how uh, the, the government connects with local people. Now, we're going to be following through on this theme and having a look at how this works in UK as well. But before we do that, Let's have a look at these little video clips about um, using children to get in what is clearly a globalist agenda heading towards net zero. Mummy, we sang a song today about chickens. Do we eat chickens? We do, yeah. We had bird's eye green cuisine dippers for lunch. They're made from plants, not chickens, and they're really nice. Why don't we have them sometimes? Not sure. Is it because you fear change and you're scared to try something new? Because if no one likes it, it will be remembered as the night mum made that thing. Look, mummy, a butterfly. Oh, yeah. Bird's eye green cuisine. Welcome to the plant age. Uh, David, I have to be careful here because uh, the clock will be running very quickly in this segment. Um, but what did you pick up on that little clip? A couple of themes here. Uh, the uh, children are educating the parents, not the other way around. That was quite an interesting point. And, mm -hmm. um, of course, the attack on uh, all forms of livestock is ongoing on, on many fronts. Uh, I'd also have to say it's failing quite badly. Indeed. Well, there is some good news, which we'll get, get on to. Let's have a look at the second clip to reinforce David's analysis. This New Year veggie thing, it's going to be quite hard. Because you might give up again on becoming a whole new person? No, because I really like chicken fillet rolls for lunch. Then put the Green Cuisine chicken-free dippers in. They're really yummy. Oh, yeah. I like those. Bird's Eye Green Cuisine. Welcome to the plant age. So we've got another adult, not too sure. Let's have a look at the third clip. Dad, we played hide-and-seek at Daisy's house. Oh, wow. And we had plant-based burgers. Huh. They're called Bird's Egg Green Cuisine. They're really nice and they're better for the planet. Can we get them? I'm not sure how much difference it makes, really. Do you think you're more clever than all the scientists in the world? Or are you just avoiding the whole thing because life's too complicated as it is? Uh... Can we play I Spy? Yeah, yeah, no, I love a bit of I Spy. <laughs> Bird's Eye Green Cuisine. Welcome to the plant age. So, Mark, very quickly, the children's head filled with the power of the scientists. And as David has said, the child educates the parents. This is pretty vicious stuff, although it's in cartoon form. Yeah, real quick. It's interesting that it says welcome to the plant age as if this is a paradigm shift, not just another market choice. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a plant based food and having that choice at the supermarket, but they're pushing it as more than just a consumer choice here. And that's very clear. Yeah, lovely. Thank, thank you for that. Well, let's move on. And I have to say, over the last few days, I've been given some very, very good pointers by uh, viewers of UK Column looking at who is getting in amongst councils in order to reframe the policy agenda inside the council. This is one organisation. It's called UK 100. Powers in place. The powers local authorities have. It's a network of ambitious local government leaders for cleaner, more powerful communities. End the weight, insulate UK's uh, new social housing um, provide, uh, um, 
energy insulation provider. So this is all policy which you can track straight back to the UN. We're not going to do that today. We're simply going to have a look at this organization. Uh, here it reinforces again, it's a network of local leaders who pledge to lead a rapid transition to net zero with clean air in their communities ahead of the government's legal target. And these people getting in amongst local councils in particular, I just had a look at the board here. People can freeze the screen and look at these individuals. But you've got everybody from special advisors, uh, bankers, it's the NatWest Bank involved, um, EU Climate Foundation, and then you've got communications, coaching and mentoring. The moment you see coaching and mentoring, this is to do with reframing. Uh, we won't forget Emma because she's the representative of uh, Energy UK, uh, which is the representative body for the whole of the UK's energy industry. Now, I challenged this organisation a few days ago because I was interested in how they were funding. It, uh, funded. If you look at their website, um, it told you to go to Company's House to see the funding. But when you went to Company's House and read it, they didn't tell you because it said during the year, the, uh, up to 31st December 2022, they received 1.2 million, but it then just said a number of sources. So I've asked for clarification. But if that organisation is working, we'll say, at higher level in councils and the networks around councils, uh, this organisation is working at much lower level. This is the Society for Local Council Clerks. So we're getting down the scale, but now what we're doing is getting in amongst the district councils, the town parish community system in order to get this globalist agenda in. And um, I, was, I was delighted to be given uh, a part of a presentation which has been given by this organisation. It's on the subject of carbon literacy help your council tackle the, tackle the climate emergency. And I'm going to go through this really quickly so we can have a little bit of discussion on it. Here's the workshop, the pathway to distant delivery. This was online. People were not allowed to speak to each other. They could only listen. But there's the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, this is the Carbon Literacy Trust, which is in the background providing the meat of the material. Um, if you freeze this, it says that it's a massive collaborative project and involves people and organisation from all sectors and walks of life. Now, what did they do? Well, the first thing they did is put the attendees on the Zoom meeting on the guilt trip. How could I look my grandchildren in the eye and say I knew what was happening to the world and did nothing. Very strict rules on what you could do during this video conferencing. And essentially, each of the people participating were very much kept isolated. So they didn't really have a chance to speak to anybody else, including in the comfort breaks. And what were you aiming at? Well, of course, if you answered all the questions correctly, you could ultimately um, get a certificate saying that you were competent. I've met all the requirements of the carbon literacy standard and thus for the purposes of the workshop, education and community should be regarded as carbon literate. So nobody's checking the background to the information they're putting across, but they are assessing people. And this is big business and it needs to be watched very carefully because, of course, if we look at the numbers of people they're boasting about, over 53,000 citizens certified. Maybe that's a little bit of black humour there, but of course they've been reframed into this globalist agenda. These are some of the other slides that are being used. Why carbon literacy in our council is important. Values, influence, duty, ethics, political and social will, government and sectoral targets, financial savings. But you've got to do it to be the best. And... Um, this is another one. Uh, it's giving people little flashes on what they should be thinking about. Have a look at the loft and wall insulation there and take into account uh, Mike's warning, Mike Robinson's warnings over uh, the insulation, the energy efficiency of your house and whether you can face a criminal charge as a result of, of not keeping ahead of the game on that. Um, but there's flights, there's uh, what we can eat, there's everything is being discussed as a guilt trip. Uh, we've got emotive stuff like this. Greece is on fire. No mention of arson. As far as they're concerned, this is all to do with global warming. 
Um, we get in statistics, which um, helps the scientific nature, believe those scientists. But what's very uh, clear here is that the top 1% earners are not only recognized, it's as though they're going to stay while be people at the bottom of the pile are going to be um, are going to suffer clamp down in order to adhere to the new rules. And if we go on, um, funding. Now, what we learn is that if local councils get involved in this sort of training, suddenly pots of funding open up, which make their life easier to spread the word, but also to spend on other projects. So money is part of, I'll call it bribery with a small b, uh, in order to get this agenda into the heart of local councils. Um, this is the psychology. You're getting each individual taking place in the meeting uh, to pick up one action that they can implement, pick an action that they can implement with colleagues, complete the action plan template. So this is reframing people in order to support the agenda without asking if it's right. And I'm going to add, woe betide anybody who doesn't agree, because in this presentation, uh, they were very quick to point out that they're having trouble. This is the good news. They're having trouble convincing enough people quickly enough. Um, and so what they did in the presentation is to highlight groups that they're concerned about. So here we have the backbone conservatives. They identify as traditional, practical, hardworking. Their concerns are countryside preservation. And if you're going to try and talk to them, you should frame your message to discuss climate change impacts on agriculture, seasonal produce, sustainable land management, and engage um, national leadership in successes. So this is really going for the political side. Um, here we've got what they call civic pragmatists. They're identified as charitable, practical, moderate, community-orientated and progressive. And of course, you see the cakes on the table. So I'll say gently, this is Blue Rinse Brigade. These are people probably involved in the church. They want to do good, but you need to get amongst them to make sure you convert them to the new zero um, agenda uh, program. Here's disengaged battlers. Maybe some of the UK column people come into this uh, particular description. They identify as resilient. They feel unheard and unrepresentative. And their concerns are inequality, economic disparity, fairness, and social justice. They are a big problem, and they need to be dealt with in a special way to get the agenda across. And if I go on to the toolkit here, this is provided in order that anybody who's now picked up uh, the agenda being pushed by SLCC uh, is going to be pushed through as effectively as possible to as many people as possible. So on that, let's come back to you, David. I have to say I was able to see a huge amount of material and I talked to some really fascinating individuals who travelled from another part of the country in order to give a little briefing on what they saw happening. But this was political applied psychology. Um, it was mind blowing in its breadth and depth in order to capture local authorities down to the level of a parish council in order to get what is essentially a UN globalist net zero agenda across. What's your thoughts? Well, the, I think of all of all the information you gave there, the, the most key was the point about you made about dissent not being tolerated. You know, you must comply. Um, these these issues are not being put forward for debate or justified based on the facts. They must be believed. They must be accepted. Otherwise, you're a heretic. Right? This is a, there's a religious aspect to this. There's a, a, a pseudo religious aspect to this. And you must believe the core tenets of the religion, or pretend to. Otherwise, um, you will be uh, condemned to outer darkness in, in council terms, which means you'll be viewed as a troublemaker. Well, long live the troublemakers. Long live the troublemakers. Thank you for that. The other thing that was pointed out to me is that local councils are now being offered uh, professional 
clerk. So in a parish council right there next to the community, usually the clerk is somebody who is competent, but they're brought in essentially as an amateur to help the parish council. Um, but what's being offered to the parish councils is professional clerks. And if the council engages a professional clerk, that unleashes uh, pots of funding which of course is very attractive to most parish councils who are usually very short of money. So this is very cold calculated stuff. And ultimately uh, we can see that this is a massive program of reframing, changing the mindset of people to go from their normal happy uh, lives into something which is controlled by a centralized UN uh, climate change net zero agenda. And I'll just add that I've also been able to see now the very thing that Mike from Slough warned about, and that was the fact that if you followed through the C40 city agenda, um, it, it would actually bring you to the fact that we're not going to be able to eat meat. And I've now seen that document trail, and I will do my best to bring those to the uh, perception of the UK column viewers in future news. Now, before we end the seg segment, if we can do it, I'd just like to bring in the video, uh, if that's possible, um, showing where we are really headed if we allow this madness to continue. Let's see this video clip. <laughs> לשאלתך לפני כן, פה אנחנו טוענים את המדפסת הזו בתאי גזע, שאנחנו יודעים למעל לשריר ולשומן, והיא יודעת להדפיס טונות ביום. טונות? טונות של בשר מתורבת ביום. זה רק לשם ההמחשה, אתה תוכל לבחור את הסטייק שלך, והמדפסת תתחיל לשחרר סטייקים בקצב תעשייתי. סיריליון, אני לא יודע אם אתה אוהב יותר שומן או פחות שומן. באמצע. View order, slide to print. ופה בעצם המדפסת מתחילה לייצר סטייקים. סטייקים, הייחודיות פה היא שתאי הגזע נשארים חיים אחרי שהם מודפסים. סטייק יהיה מוכן בסביב הדקה. דקה? דקה. השלב פה הוא שווה ערך לשלב שבו הפרה נולדת בעצם. הפרה לוקח שנתיים עד שהיא... נשחטת, היא מזהמת את העולם בתהליך, פה זה תהליך שהוא הרבה יותר קצר. בלי שטח, בלי מים ובלי צוח. בלי שטח, בלי מים, בלי חתימה פחמנית. בלי פליטות, בלי כלום. איפה הסטייק? הסטייק עכשיו מודפס, ועכשיו אנחנו נעבור ל... Uh, well, there you have it. I'm sorry, I, sh I should have said that, uh, of course, the, um, the emphasis of the video was on screen, but essentially that was Netanyahu um, looking at a 3D printer of meat. And uh, what was happening was the machine was printing off a steak where you could select the amount of uh, fat in the meat to make it the steak you wanted. Uh, this was capable of producing tons of 3D printed meat. Mark, very quickly as a last comment, uh, how do you fancy one of those steaks? <laughs> well, I'll pass until I learn more about it. It's fascinating that it can be done at all. But uh, they're talking about how cows pollute the world. It's all based on that. And I'd like them to show me concretely how cows measure up in so-called polluting the world. And always on this assumption that carbon, carbon dioxide, one of the gases of life, is essentially potentially poisonous or a pollutant. It's simply not true. Uh, carbon dioxide is only 0.04% of the atmosphere. Let me get that right. And even... Pro-climate organizations will admit that. The only other thing I'll add is local governments should be uh, constituted for gathering public input and sending it up the ladder to parliament, not dictating what the public should believe. Okay, Mark, thank you very much on that. Well, if uh, that's madness in one direction, you've got some interesting progress in another. Uh, David, what's been happening in Glasgow? It's interesting to note, Brian, the UK 100 uh, website you were referring to earlier was all uh, in England, apart from one council in Scotland, and that was Glasgow. So that's where we go next, in a programme called Gallant. Right? So this has been run by Glasgow University. So the first thing I want you to note here, it's been run by Glasgow University the, uh, School of Education. 
put that to one side and we'll come back to it in a moment. Uh, this is uh, Glasgow is going to be a living lab, that's laboratory, accelerating novel transformation. So Gallant is a NERC-funded £10.2 million partnership between Glasgow University, Glasgow City Council, and we use Glasgow as a living lab to trial new sustainable solutions throughout the city. Uh, it takes a whole system approach while addressing the city's key environmental challenges. We'll consider benefits, blah, blah, blah. So um, it's also going to use the donut economics model. More on that story in extra time. So. Um, Glasgow's now a lab. I, I wonder if the people of Glasgow know about this. Um, so you'll be wondering who exactly NERC are. NERC are part of the UK Research and Innovation Organisation, which has got many councils, a uh, budget of 7.9 billion uh, from the uh, Business, Environment and Industry uh, Department of the UK Government. Um, the Treasury and the Cabinet also have um, a role in approving where the money goes. So that's where the money is coming from. And what's it going to? Well, we've got work package one is flood risk assessment um, on tidal changes. Now, the tides are not changing. Uh, sea level rise, yeah, one millimetre a year. It's not a big story. Increased water from extreme weather events. That one's not happening either. But they're talking about flood risk assessment, but it's not the engineering department that's dealing with this. No, it's the education, School of Education. The next thing is we're halting biodiversity loss. Is it an environmental department? No, it's the Department of Education. Um, the, next, uh, the next work package is regenerating derelict land. Well, that should be environmental science or civil engineering or something, but no, it's education. Then we're going to reduce car journeys, of course, um, and tackle housing and heating. Now, you might be wondering what this has got to do with education. But of course, it's not really about any of those things, and we'll come to very shortly what it is about. Um, I point out here they've got a web, they've got a Twitter account, of course, um, and they're very keen on uh, Greater Govan Hill. Um, they, they retweeted uh, a comment that I want to be around other queer people in all aspects of my life, so why not also gardening? We meet Southside gardeners and weed through the intersections of gardeners, gardening, queerness, and communal spaces. So this is genuflecting to the new religion. This is to show that they're right on and on site and compliant. Uh, I would also point out in passing that if you did that about straightness, you would probably be arrested in Scotland. So that's an interesting data point too. So we come here to Glasgow City Council talking about the same programme. Uh, 10 billion research hub to boost Glasgow's transition to climate resilience. So they're talking about it being a thriving, resilient city and net zero by 2030. University of Glasgow researchers will work in partnership with Glasgow City Council to create transformation projects across the city and embed sustainability into the wider social political system. So it's about transformation. It's about changing how people think. It's not about flooding. It's not about environmental reclamation. It's about changing how people think. And that is why it's been run by the Education Department. Um, Glasgow City Council go on, they say, uh, Gallant aims to deliver social priorities of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, right? Yes, of course, and it's the social priorities, it's not the environmental priorities. And they conclude, using Glasgow as a living lab is an exciting opportunity to collaborate with communities and stakeholders you heard BB Netanyahu laughing about the word stakeholders in that last segment, across the city to deliver tangible environmental solutions that improve public health, well-being, and move us towards a green inclusive economy. So what they're talking about, Glasgow's a lab, and what, what, is, the, what is the lab rats? Well, that's the people of Glasgow. Uh, they're going to have their attitudes changed, their behaviours changed, and we're going to monitor how it goes. We're going to dress it up in all the green stuff, but it's about changing the people and getting in and reprogramming them and not convincing them, but making it happen without them knowing. Indeed, David, in the meantime, infrastructure decays, our ability to produce anything worthwhile decays, proper jobs decay, everything is uh, heading towards chaos. Uh, but the claim is that via the education system, the future is going to be 
the best. Well, we'll we'll stay on the case of watching what's going on. Now, if you like what the UK column is doing, please join us. Um, take out a, a subscription, support the UK column, help us do what we're doing. But also you then get the opportunity to talk and, and mix with other people. And uh, communication is very important. Many people uh, get a great feeling out of being other, able to talk to other like-minded people. You can also support us by buying through the shop and uh, have a look online. If you haven't gone for a UK column hoodie, uh, have a look and see whether one of those fits you. And of course, we all, always want to say, please share UK column information because at the end of the day, that's why we're putting the information out. So share it far and wide. And uh, that makes us very happy. Now, we've got uh, interview on the 12th of September uh, at 1pm. That's tomorrow, of course. And this is Professor Michael Esfield. Um, and the subject is common law. Common law requires the courage to judge. And that's with our very own Alex Thompson. And that should be an extremely interesting interview to watch. Um, we've also got one coming up that I'm just going to mention here, which is an interview between Debbie Evans and Roger Meacock, who's a, a vet, very experienced vet. And they're discussing possible mRNA medication that could be used on animals or go into the food chain. So that's something to think about when we see everything from uh, what's happening in farming across the board to perhaps 3D printed meat. Now, we've also got uh, an event from Public Child Protection Wales. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, Wednesday at one o'clock, and this is Parliament Square. Now, Public Child Protection Wales helped by Louise Collins and many other people have done such a tremendous job to raise awareness for the grooming of children in schools. So if you can be there, uh, please join them to talk about that. Now, where does that take us? I think it's back to you, Mark, and uh, you've got some really good news here. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I'll put it in the context of today's show in a broad sense. Uh, I talked about addressing a city council about the covidocracy and the governance behind it, not so much the dangers of the jabs, although that was implied. And, and you've also talked about today, Brian, and, and you, David, about city councils and parish councils, instead of being a place for public input, are instead places for indoctrination. And of course, the indoctrination along climate lines, along COVID lines is very important because the reason the WHO wants to have that world pandemic treaty, the core reason is because they don't want any more internal dissent within nation states when the next inevitable pandemic comes along. So therefore, stories like this dated September 8th, just a few days ago, New York teachers, New York City teachers win their jobs back with back pay after refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. This is the kind of dissent that the budding WHO worldwide pandemic treaty COVID system, this is the kind of dissent they don't want happening within uh, subunits of nations or the nation states themselves or at the individual level. And here's a little more meat on the story. A New York judge said Wednesday that 10 employees fired by the New York City Department of Education for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine must be reinstated with back pay. In a major victory for vaccine mandate opponents, state Supreme Court Judge Ralph J. Porzio uh, held that the city's denials of religious accommodation to certain employees were unlawful, arbitrary, and capricious. The case, DeCupia versus City of New York, concerned school principals, teachers, and other educators who sued after city officials rejected their claims for a religious exemption to the vaccine mandate. This court, this is a quote, sees no rational basis for not allowing unvaccinated classroom teachers in amongst an admitted population of primarily unvaccinated students, Porzio wrote in a 22-page opinion. Quote, as such, the decision to summarily deny the classroom teachers amongst the panel petitioners based on an undue hardship without any further evidence of individualized analysis is arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable. As such, each classroom teacher amongst the panel petitioners is entitled to a religious exemption from the vaccine mandate. 
So this is a pretty significant victory. There's other things like this going on, mostly going this same direction. This is one of the more highlighted ones. But again, this is that the kind of dissent that the WHO um, treaty people and what they're trying to solidify and centralize at the worldwide level. This is what they're trying to blot out for future pandemics. This shows uh, workers um, in New York City, workers are essential, mandates are not. New York City's vaccine mandate for all Department of Education workers was in effect from October 2021 to February 2023. Thousands of teachers and other education workers lost their jobs under the policy for refusing to comply with the mandate. Uh, Sujata Gibson, lead attorney for the plaintiffs, celebrated this victory as a watershed moment in the teachers' two-year fight for relief. According to a news release by RFK Jr.'s Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit founded by vaccine skeptic and de Democratic presidential candidate RFK Jr. So there you go. Um, it's a pretty well highlighted example of what the WHO's um, hoped for system doesn't want to see. So uh, pretty good news. And, and I think we'll see more of it. Thank you very much for that, Mark. And of course, a lot of effort by a great many people in order to make that judgment happen. And this is the key thing, isn't it? It's it's many people doing a little work in order to get the big results. So we're going to encourage UK column audience to think about this. What can you do in your community, even via your parish council, to challenge what's happening and make a difference? Uh, good things do come to those who try. Now, David, you're going to stay on the American theme here with Texas, uh, but we're looking at what's taking place in libraries. Yes, and this, this falls into the lesser magistrates uh, issue that, uh, that Mark mentioned a, a wee while ago, um, and obviously comes from his uh, home state. Texas is cutting ties with the American Library Association over accusations of the group's Marxist ideology. So this is a Fox News report, and what they say is um, the, uh, Brian Harrison called out the American Library Association for pushing dangerous Marxist ideology on Texans and on their children. Quote, less than one month after I requested the Texas State Library and Archives Commission cut ties with the American Library Association, he said, I'm uh, excited to report that they just informed me that they will not renew their contract with them. So they're just walking away. They said this information, this, this organisation has become woke, it's become uh, completely controlled by Marxists, and a sub-organisation is just saying, well, okay, we're off, goodbye. Um, uh, Harrison continues, this is a win for all Texans. I applaud the courageous, decisive decision by Chairwoman Martha Wong. Uh, Texas should be leading the fight against dangerous Marxist ideology, not subsidising it. Um, this is a very good point. Now, he continues uh, to talk about uh, the American Libraries Association, headed by Ms. Uh, Ms. Drabinsky. He says, if Ms. Drabinsky wants to push socialism and Marxist ideology, she can do it in her own dime. I'm fed up with overtaxed Texans being forced to fund government tyranny and the indoctrination of their children. Of course, this is happening in Britain too. The tyranny and the indoctrination of our children is being funded by our taxes. Um, unfortunately, we're not all Texans and we can't necessarily walk away, but we have, we have a, a, a huge reason to complain, to object, and to say no. Uh, Harrison describes uh, Drabinsky as a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian, member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, he says taxpayer-funded indoctrination has no place in Texas. Uh, yet Ms. Ms. Drabinsky has promised to radicalise the American Libraries Association to advance a public agenda that puts the organisation for justice at the centre of library work. Now, this is true. We have here um, a little quote from Ms. Drabinsky and a, and a, a a picture of her, in case you need to know what she looks like. Um, and she says libraries need to be a site of socialist organising. Now, there was, a, there was a conference over the weekend called Socialism 2023. It ran from September the 1st to the 4th. And uh, there was a spy in the camp, a non-socialist taking notes. So when Emily Drabinsky showed up, this is what she said. And she said, hello, I'm Emily, I'm a librarian. There was much applause because they all knew who she was. I just want to thank you for bringing up libraries and classroom libraries, but also school libraries of all kinds, public libraries and higher education libraries who've been under attack in similar ways. 
I think your point that public education needs to be a site of socialist organising. I think libraries really do too. Um, I haven't I haven't seen that work in libraries, but I think there's a real opportunity here to connect with what's happening in public education, uh, what with what's happening in libraries. We also need some help with libraries. We need to be on the agenda of socialist organising. So there, she's admitting that they've already captured the schools, and she wants to capture the libraries too. Um, I would encourage people to go and find Socialism 2023, uh, their programme. It's all, it's all on uh, YouTube, and it, there's some very interesting things, including uh, there's one um, attempt at a Sunday school. Like So we've got evangelical black gospel singing, but without God, because obviously God has no place in socialism. Um, and also an item on fighting for our lives, which is about, amongst other things, abortion, ironically enough. So a couple of quick um, stills from the event. So you see here, uh, it's not huge and it's not very well attended. I think that's a data point. The second thing to note is the very strict masking policy. Um, you see here the top table's all masked. In fact, the crowd's all masked. Only the speakers were allowed to temporarily re remove their masks in order to speak. But if you were asking a question from the floor, you had to keep your mask on. So masks are about ideological compliance. They're not about anything else. And uh, here we see one of the speakers who's got a T-shirt that reads, Fund abortion, not the police. Uh, the abolition of funding for the police. Um, was a major part of this. Now, we've got a little clip for you to give you an idea of the nature of what socialism is in 2023. Many socialists out there will be appalled. Uh, this is Mary Bowman, who is a nurse. And create community-based safety measures to defend our clinics. We must defund, disarm, and dismantle the police, abolishing that institution and the prison industrial complex. We must keep fighting for medication, abortion, and contraception to be made available without a prescription, and for all healthcare professionals to be able to provide abortion care within their scope of practice. We need to stand against any attempts to ban abortion, including later abortion, and return to the radical slogan, free abortion, on demand, without apology. We will not capitulate to spineless Democrats who allow abortion restrictions and bans as a compromise with the right. The same spineless Democrats who tout their rainbow allyship while trans people are murdered. We will defend abortion and gender affirming care clinics fiercely and beat back the bigots at their doors. We will support the right of anyone to have an abortion at any time for any reason. The right is wealthy, well-organized, and winning many legislative ba battles. They have established a playbook of repeat strategies which undermine bodily autonomy and police gender expression. They believe their fight has been a divinely appointed to them by God. In order to beat them, we must come together to build a mass movement and take power. Our movements have more in common than just our enemies. The tenets of what we are fighting for are interconnected. Transgender liberation is reproductive justice. Manifesting reproductive justice is impossible without achieving trans liberation. Ultimately, our collective freedom depends on liberation from every oppressive system and the creation of a new society built on human need, where abortion is everywhere and trans people are free. So abortion has to be everywhere in the new socialist utopia, not any longer uh, safe, legal and rare, rare, everywhere. There must be um, mass killing. Uh, this is, I say, Mary Bowman. We've got here a couple of slides that give her CV, uh, which... Uh, those who wish to read it can, can pause on. And uh, she was asked, what's it like being an abortion provider? She said, being an abortion provider, when it's just me and the other person, is magical. It's wonderful to be an abortion provider when I get to just get to do my job. My movement is the vast network of people who want to protect me so I can go on and do my job and protect my patients so they can get healthcare safely without the life's been put in risk. I want abortion to be the freedom and revelation of someone's life. So you see this 
almost mystical aspect of abortion. This is um, quite concerning. Uh, and finally on this, we've got her, her Twitter page where she says, uh, she's uh, Dr. Dr. Mary Kay Bowman, they, them, obviously, nurse practitioner, abortion and trans rights provider, activist, abolitionist of the police, that is. Um, speck of star stuff in an infinite multiverse. And although you might think that's silly, uh, that is actually um, basically a confession of faith. And this is what they believe. Um, it is the official scientific dogma. It is insane. And it's one of the many things in this movement that, that is. Fine, final word on this. There was generally a, 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 an air of desperation about that conference of we're losing, even though they've captured all of the institutions, they know they're losing the arguments. Yeah, David, terrific. Uh, thank you for delivering that. We need to know. Now, let's go back to you, uh, Mark. And uh, you've been looking at the EU and uh, what's been happening, matters around COVID, I think. Yeah, l let me add that during extra, that Mary Bowman thing, just let me add it. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're revisiting what I reported on last week, the International COVID Summit 3 Part 2 at the European Parliament in Brussels, which happened on or around the 3rd of May this year. And I just wanted to do a little update that there's another aspect to this, and we need to look at it objectively. Um, you'll notice in that first slide, you could see the ECR uh, logo in the background. And we'll talk about that in a moment, and we'll move on from there. Um, uh, this is uh, revisiting a slide I had last week, the main physician suspended for COVID misinformation. This is Merrill Nass. And not only did the state of Maine Board of Licensure um, immediately suspend her license as a doctor for false COVID-19 information, but they actually ordered her to undergo a neurophysiological neurophysiological evaluation for having wrong think. And that's just something to keep in mind, something to stress just as just how serious it's getting. Now, that ECR group that, that was partially behind that European Union Parliament split off group that held that uh, conference, that ECR group is the European Conservatives and Reformists, ECR. And this is a little bit about what they're about cooperation, yes, super state, no. Now, that's interesting because, and I want you guys to correct me if I'm wrong or if you think I'm going uh, off par here, I believe the EU already is a super state. So to, to say cooperation, yes, super state, no, would seem to be kind of a tardy statement at best, in my opinion. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. This is looking at the ECR a little more closely. Um, they are they have an EU-UK policy working group. They have the ECR policy group on migration. They have the European tour on the Conference of the Future of Europe. Uh, ECR carbon sinks working. Carbon sinks, we talked about that last week, where um, uh, the banker Mark Carney, the former central banker of both Canada and England, has been accused of supporting deforestation. And if he's so pro-climate change, how can he be in favor of deforestation? Because forests are carbon sinks that take excess carbon out of the atmosphere. It's called photosynthesis as part of that. Um, and we have other things. The one in the lower left, you can't quite read, but the uh, e ECR group, European Conservatives and Reformists, also has a pro-family unit. So this is just taking a little broader view of what this group's about. Uh, they say they're safeguarding borders and things like that as well. Now, um, that's just kind of an FYI thing. So we, again, we have a broader, more objective view of what that conference was about. Um, and then one of the things that the Associated Press and American Press was doing in their fact-checking of that conference and calling out Merrill Nass as if she was committing grave sins when she was only one of 22 speakers there and as I mentioned last week, they reported on that event in a very thin sliced manner and only accused Merrill Nass of, false, of, of stating some falsehoods without even mentioning the broad scope and 22 some odd speakers at that event, including the well-known U.S. physician, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, very skeptical, of course, of the COVID vaxes and very aware of the adverse effects and deaths that are resulting from those vaxes or really mRNA injections. But another thing that the media was saying that was essentially not true was that 
um, someone was saying that there's 100-day vaccines, 100-day development vaccines um, on the horizon. Well, it turns out that CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, uh, in fact, is saying this. Here's the headline, the Global Pandemic Preparedness Summit. This is a different event. On the road to 100-day vaccines, international policymakers, scientists, and representatives of industry, philanthropy, and civil society were united at the Global Pandemic Preparedness Summit, co-hosted in London by the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, and the UK government back in March of 2022 in endorsing the ambition to have safe, effective, and globally accessible vaccines against the next pandemic threat ready in just 100 days. Uh, But the devil will be in realizing, the devil in the details will be in realizing this goal from raising the US $3.5 billion required by CEPI to deliver on its pandemic-busting plan over the next five years, to realigning global regulatory systems, to scaling up manufacturing and ensuring supplies of everything down to rubber stoppers for vials. What is not in doubt is the fact that the world will face more deadly disease outbreaks with the potential to wreak havoc on lives and livelihoods in the years ahead. Uh, the, the, The fact that humanity has just been through one pandemic does not reduce the risk of being hit by another unknown pathogen, a so-called disease X. So contrary to the fact checkers, there really are plans involving the UK government of 100-day vaccines. And of course, there it is. And the WHO, it's uh, music to their ears that we can expect more and more outbreaks as time passes. So that's that for today, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Mark. And of course, you've brought focus back onto the fact that policy in this case on vaccines on matters COVID coming from way above a national government. This is back into the globalist agenda. Well, where's it all heading? Um, Let's turn to the BBC and uh, Laura Koonsberg, who had this to say. This place is meant to be in charge. Thank you very much. But with five prime ministers in six years, it hasn't felt that way. We became a laughingstock. I don't know a single MP who didn't get a death threat. I have been a systematic plotter who's tried to remove the prime minister. I said he won't be satisfied until he burns the house down. And the way President Trump used to operate, I was sacked on Twitter. I said, I think you've got three weeks now. Just how close did our political system come to falling apart? I think we lost our minds. And will it ever be the same again? It is the end of normal. Well, there we are, State of Chaos. The BBC, of course, has been working on the breakdown agenda to destroy society in UK. Uh, Those MPs, puppets in a much bigger game, but they simply don't realise that eventually their jobs will also go. Uh, But to suggest that what is happening in the breakdown in this country is accidental is uh, so naive as to be unbelievable. David, just 10 seconds. Well, chaos is right, right? But why, right? I I would point to the underlying ideas Uh, that have been installing themselves for decades and indeed longer. And the inability of people to push back and use their own God-given intelligence and reason um, to to resist folly. And we should do it in big ways and small, in all aspects, in all all venues available to us, uh, because that's, that's the antidote. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of the two uh, Conservative MPs that warned many years ago. Uh, Their warnings were published principally in The Guardian, but they were saying that the Conservatives planned to introduce a bit of uh, calculated uh, breakdown in the public sector in order to herald in the new era. And it's really fascinating that we seem to be watching that happen. But of course, the BBC won't investigate properly how we've gone from a perfectly competent country to a madhouse. The BBC will just enjoy the the ride of the nonsense, but uh, we'll stay on their case. Now, David, just to put us into a slightly better frame of, mo- <laughs> frame of mind for the end of UK column, you've got a couple of uh, memes here. Let's bring one up on screen. 
Yes, so them, what do you do for a living? Me, God's work. Them, oh, so you're a minister. Me, not quite. And it's a photograph of a man sitting on top of a lighting pole, smashing a surveillance camera with a hammer. And of course, uh, the ULA's uh, Blade Runners are doing this on a massive scale. And indeed, the rest of the country is cheering them on. Uh, and, a, and a little uh, nod back to uh, COVID policy. Government then now 2021, take the shot and we'll fire you, fire you, starve you, take your children, put you in camps and leave you to die without medical treatment. In 2023, nobody forced you to take the shot. Yeah. Isn't that true? Absolutely true. And on that uh, happy, unhappy note, we'll end. A very big thank you to all of our UK column viewers and subscribers. We can only do what we do. We can only do what we do with your financial support. So thank you very much. That's the end of the news for today. We will be back for extra in just a few moments. So stay with us. Thank you. Bye bye.